Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This week, we are joined by Joan Dempsey. Joan spent 25 years in the federal government, which included senior roles with the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and the Central Intelligence Agency. She also held two political appointments, Deputy Director of Central Intelligence for Community Management and Executive Director of the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. After retiring from the federal government in 2005, Joan worked for Booz Allen, where she advanced to executive vice president. For the past five years, Joan has served on multiple boards and focused on helping small and mid-sized companies achieve growth in federal and commercial markets and in the technology sector. Hi, Joan. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Megan. It's a great pleasure to be here, and it's an honor, too. So thanks for including me in this series. We couldn't be more happy to have you. So we like to start each episode with a similar question, and that question is, could you tell us a bit about how you came into this crazy community that we have here? Um, We'd love to hear a little bit of your backstory. Sure. I'd I'd be happy to share with you how I got into the intelligence world. I'd love to say it was deliberate, that it was a very thoughtful action on my part to join this community, but I would be lying if I did say that. I grew up in a very rural and economically challenged part of the country in South Arkansas, and I grew up with my father's stories of his career in the Navy. He retired just a few years after I was born from uh, the naval base in California, San Diego, and we moved back first to Texas and then to Arkansas, and he became a teacher. So I grew up with him in the summers, traveling, going to see his Navy buddies from his previous life and hearing all of these amazing stories about what it was like to be in the Navy. So I graduated from high school when I was 17. And as I mentioned, there weren't a lot of opportunities in the area where I grew up. And I went to college for a year, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, my dad told me these marvelous stories about all these exotic places he went and the things that he did in the Navy. Maybe I'll give that a shot. So I did. I enlisted in the Navy. And while I was in boot camp, I took a lot of aptitude tests. And they told me one day that I would make a great cryptologic technician. And I said, that's terrific. What's a cryptologic technician? They said, well, we can't really tell you because it's classified, but you're going to love it. So trust us. And so I became a cryptologic technician. And that's how I got into the intelligence community. Now, what I didn't know and couldn't know when I agreed to do this was that I was going to be on my way to A school to learn Morse code. And I became a Morse code intercept operator. Now, for me, that was a 
pretty exciting thing to do because Morse code for me sounds like music. And I've always had uh, a musical bent. So I went through A school faster than anyone had ever gone through A school and then went to Misawa, Japan, where I intercepted Morse code, specifically uh, Soviet Morse code from strategic bombers and submarines and merchant ships and warfighting ships. And it was the headiest, most amazing experience that I could have ever imagined. Now, the downside was that I listened to all these fabulous stories from my father, and I actually got to experience a lot of fabulous things when I was in the Navy. But I also hadn't thought through what it was going to be like for an 18-year-old woman in the 1970s to be in the Navy. And it was a challenging experience. In fact, one of the things I learned during that time was it's great to be the first of something, but you don't want to be the only of something. Not only was I the only woman in my work environment, but I was the only woman on the base. And that was not a comfortable place to be. And so it was a great experience in many respects, but it was also a very challenging experience. And I was happy when my term of enlistment was over and I went back to college and ultimately got a master's degree and then came to Washington. I had been bitten by the intelligence bug. And so I came to DC and went back into the community as a civilian. So that's how I got into it. I'd love for it to be more deliberate, uh, but it wasn't. It was completely by accident. That's a great story. I can imagine that in the beginning of your career, there had been many times you found yourself being the only woman, the only one in the room. Can you take us back to those moments and describe what the community looked like when you first started out in the intelligence community? Sure. And as I mentioned, there were many times when I was the only woman. It was a very different community than it is today. One of the things that I've learned about not just our business, but uh, I think society in general, is that diversity happens frequently as a result of adversity. When I came into the intelligence community as a civilian, it was right at the beginning of the Reagan administration. And the community, there was tremendous growth in programs and budgets and manpower. The community was hiring as many people as it possibly could to keep up with the desire that the Reagan administration had to expand our defense and intelligence capabilities to deal with the Soviet threat. So it wasn't so much that the community decided that hiring young women was uh, a good thing from a diversity standpoint. It was more a necessity because there weren't enough young men who could be cleared and get into the community fast enough. So they needed to hire women as well. So that was the circumstance in which I came into the community. It didn't really matter how I got here because I had enormous opportunities once I got into the IC. And I really benefited for those opportunities. As you mentioned, I was frequently the only woman in the room. I was younger by decades than a lot of the men. As long as I was always on top of my game and did well, it was an advantage to be a woman because people remembered me. But you didn't want to screw up. You definitely wanted to be on top of your game. So I felt a real drive to be prepared, to always know what the issues were and what, how I wanted to deal with those issues and really come across looking very professional and very much uh, at the top of my game. And so there were times when, you know, I screwed up 
and I had to own those screw ups and live with them and try to get over them. But I always knew that people were going to remember me. And and I think for the most part, that was to my benefit. You mentioned in that last kind of story, the Office of Budgeting and Programming. So why did you decide to move into budgeting and programming world? There are some, there are a lot of misconceptions about that field. Could you tell us about that, you know, that job and that field? And, and I've heard you talk about it, that you really enjoyed that kind of work and tell us why. Yeah, I did enjoy it. I wasn't sure when I first applied for the job. I mean, I had a lot of fears about going into programming and budgeting. I thought it was going to be a lot of math and a lot of numbers. What I quickly discovered. And and the reason I applied for the job is because it offered tremendous opportunities for advancement. And I was all about uh, creating opportunities, capitalizing opportunities for advancement. And so that was what first attracted me to it. And I knew it was going to be a challenge and I like to have challenges. So that was the other part of it. But I was pretty apprehensive about whether or not I could do the job. In fact, That's been a consistent theme throughout my career that I'm always just not completely sure that I'm going to be successful at the jobs I take. Um, In this case, I couldn't have been more wrong about what it was like. What I discovered is that if you understand how to program for new capabilities, if you understand the capabilities that the intelligence community needs, and you can be effective at winning support for those programs, It's an extraordinarily powerful position. It's a very um, substantive position. It has nothing to do with numbers. Uh, It's really more about how we build capabilities and how we advance the community. And in my area, I've always been on the intelligence collection side and specifically technical collection. And so it was a great platform in which to really advance the needs of the community. And I got to write congressional testimony. I actually testified on the Hill as a very junior officer, and I was able to sway uh, the administrations and Congress to see the value and the importance of the programs that I was advocating. That was really heady stuff. Very different than technical collection against Soviet uh, battleships and, and submarines and airplanes, but very heady and very impactful in its own right. So I absolutely loved it. And interestingly enough, it was a very good avenue for women to advance in my for my generation of women. A disproportionate number of senior positions in programming and budgeting in those years were held by women. And so it was a great opportunity for us to advance. You've had a really amazing career that um, spanned different organizations and different positions in the intelligence community. And I was wondering if you could share with us a couple of stories about some of your favorite moments or maybe your favorite positions that you've held, uh, whether that be a junior, you know, as a junior officer or more senior. I, I, I think I've heard you say a certain point of your career was more, you had more fun than, than uh, different parts of your career. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that or share with our listeners a little more about that. Yeah, I definitely had more fun as a junior officer than I did as a senior officer. Uh, And it wasn't just that, you know, the the amount of responsibility that you have increases, of course, as you get more senior, that is true. But it was just fun being a junior officer. And of course, 
As I've already mentioned, I really came of age as an intelligence officer at the height of the Cold War. And it's hard to say that those were fun days, but they were they were pretty heady days. And there was a lot going on, a lot at stake that really mattered. And there was a sense of camaraderie around those days that were uh, really a lot of fun. And so I got to do things that I would have never imagined that I would be able to do and was involved in so many uh, operational things that were really uh, fascinating and interesting and mattered to the country. And, you know, who doesn't want to do that when they're in their mid-20s? There were also some trying times. It was a tough time uh, for women. We were, as I mentioned, we were just coming into um, really in large numbers into the community. And there wasn't a, a large number of women ahead of us. So there were times when it was trying. When I first came into the community, there were lots of restrictions on what women could do as a civilian. Now, I'm not talking about in the Navy, but as a civilian, we couldn't travel, for example, with classified material on the metro rail. So if I was taking metro, which was pretty new back then, from the Pentagon to another location and wanted to carry classified material, I couldn't because it wasn't safe supposedly for a woman to do that. Men could, by the way. That was um, my next question. So this was for women only. Yes, they were was. not. Wow. The other thing, women were not supposed to travel overseas by themselves. Now, you know me well enough, Megan, to know that those sorts of restrictions really didn't set well with me. So I made a big point of going overseas, going to Europe to visit European command by myself. And I have to tell a story on myself, which is not a good story, but I have to do it because um, it's always good when we learn to be humble at various points in our career. I made my first trip overseas. I was probably 25. I was going to a conference at UCOM, uh, which then as now was in Stuttgart. So I flew first to Frankfurt and I arrived in Frankfurt after an overnight flight. I was very tired. I'd never been to Europe. And I was standing at looking at the board, trying to figure out where my connecting flight was to Stuttgart. And I saw out of the corner of my eye, this very shady looking character. And he's watching me. And I think, well, this is not good. So I'm watching him. He's watching me. I turned back to my luggage to get my purse out and realized that his partner, while I had been watching him, his partner came around, picked up my purse and was gone. It had all of my money, my passport, my um, ticket to Stuttgart, all of my IDs, everything was in that purse and it was gone. Wow. And my first thought was, damn it, I should have traveled with somebody else. <laughs> now, fortunately for me, because at that time, the American embassy in Germany was in Bonn. This was before reunification. And there was an American consulate at the airport. So I was able to go to the consulate and get a temporary identification. And I actually made my flight. I got reticketed and made my flight. And then I got an advance on my per diem. It all turned out fine, but it was terrifying. It was humiliating and it was embarrassing. And I had to own up to it when I got back. So like I said, a little humility is a good thing sometimes. That was a great story. Thanks for sharing, Joan. So, you know, you, you mentioned the camaraderie among your peers at that time. It was an exciting time. Um, but how, how was your relationship specifically with women that you served with? 
at that time? Because there wasn't that many, as you stated, in the intelligence community. And how did those relationships change as you grew more senior? Yeah, great question, Megan. I'm I'm embarrassed to say that as a junior officer, junior civilian officer, my relationship with women was not good. And as you mentioned, there weren't many women uh, in those years in the intelligence community, certainly not many senior women. When I first got to DIA, there were four women who were in... um, 13, 14, 15 ranks. And three of them were Soviet analysts. One was a strategic planner who had come from Capitol Hill. And it was a little uh, shady the way she had come over and she came over into a 14 position. And there was a lot of resentment of that. And I think what happened is women saw themselves as competing for the same small number of senior positions that women would be allowed to occupy. And so there wasn't much sense of community there was certainly nothing like the AWIC or any of the other groups, affinity groups that women can draw on today. And we competed with each other. And frankly, I was largely denied the professional company of women. And I found myself buying into this. It was extremely stupid uh, and ill-advised behavior. And fortunately, it didn't last long. And I realized how ridiculous it was that I saw women who were having the same experiences that I was having. I saw them as competition instead of compatriots. And so I got over that, but it has stuck with me that it was such um, unfortunate behavior on our part that we let ourselves be defined by institutions that didn't necessarily want to see us get promoted and be successful in those institutions. And we bought into that rather than being uh, supportive of each other. We saw ourselves as competition. How did that change? Because I know that you are very supportive of other women. Um, You've been supportive of me and and many others. And I know very senior women that have risen in the ranks with you, um, you are also very close with and you all have kind of promoted and mentored each other. So where was that shift? And, you know, it wasn't just a shift with you, but also had to be a shift with them as well. I honestly believe that it was based, for me at least, it was based on that experience of seeing women as my competition, as opposed to seeing everyone as my competition. And I think it really affected me for the rest of my career. You know, we all go through challenges professionally. And one of the big things for me is whenever I find myself becoming somebody I don't want to be, or buying into a philosophy or a way of thinking about things that uh, in reflection really isn't what I believe, it, it's a seminal moment for me. And it, it causes me to rethink where I am and what I'm doing. And that's what happened after a while when I realized that I saw those four women who frankly were not very supportive of me either as a more junior officer. I didn't want to be like that. And I started seeking out women peers of mine and building bridges and building relationships. And I'll tell you, it's been really probably the most rewarding aspect of my entire career. And those relationships uh, with, with my women counterparts and peers have lasted for decades. They have with men too. So I don't want to, I don't want to sound like it's um, just the women that I'm close to. That's not true. But we have shared experiences, shared life experiences, shared professional experiences that have created a bond that I wouldn't have missed for anything in the world. 
And so that was really the defining moment for me when I saw how corrosive that environment was and how uh, we were all affected by the fact that we saw each other as competitors, not as compatriots. Well, I have to thank you for that because it's because of the community that you and your peers created, AWIC came out of that, right? So I'm very thankful. And I'm sure many of our listeners who who are a part of AWIC are thankful as well. So thanks, Joan. That's very kind of you to say, Megan. And I'll tell you, I am incredibly impressed with the women that I get to spend time with in the IC today and just how impressive you all are and how confident you are. And it's just, it, it is so gratifying to me to see the great women that are serving in our community and serving the nation. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. So delighted to be a part of that community and to see what you all do. As a friend of mine used to say, I will gladly hold your capes for you. You really are super, uh, super women and you have lots of superpowers. So. Oh, that just gave me chills. That gave me chills. So, you know, I think this is a good transition to uh, ask you, I've always wanted to ask you this question, you know, looking at the IC now, what, what excites you? What do you see that gets you giddy and happy about what, what's happening in the community at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about. And we've been talking about my experiences of the last 45 years, what it was like to be a woman in the intelligence community. And I see tremendous growth and improvement in diversity from all angles. It, we're not where we want to be. We're not where we objectively need to be. But we have made enormous strides in both um, racial diversity and gender diversity and ethnic diversity. And, you know, the community has said for years that diversity, it's, it's good to be diverse, but it's smart to be diverse. Diversity of thought, diversity of capability and competence is good for the intelligence community. And, um, you know, that was a mantra that we cited for many years, but we didn't always live up to it. And I see much more diversity today in the community. Still more to go, but I, I think we are on a good path. I see the women leaders in particular, and it's just become um, accepted that you're going to have great women leaders along with great uh, male leaders and mentors. And I think that's all very, very positive. So for me in my career lifetime, that's probably been the biggest single change and the most exciting change. So many of our listeners might not know that you have a mentorship award named after you. From where you sit now, if you could mentor yourself as a junior officer, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, so before I answer your question, I I have to tell you that every year when the um, INSA award announcements go out or the solicitation for people for those awards, several of my friends will say, hey, I saw that you got nominated for an INSA award. That's great. (laughs) And I want to say, you know, you really need to read the email a little more closely. I didn't get nominated. It is, you know, in my name, but I don't do that because that would not be nice. Uh, But I'm always amused by that. And I, I, I wonder how they got clearances. But anyway, um, if I were, if I were mentoring my younger self today, I would tell myself to take risk, to be comfortable taking risks, to have confidence, always do your homework, be prepared. Um, but don't be insecure. Uh, don't 
underestimate yourself or sell, sell yourself short. That was something as a junior officer that I frequently did. I didn't have the self-confidence and I wasn't comfortable always taking risk. Now, it needs to be calculated risk, obviously. I would always also tell my younger self that while life is short, your work life is very long. And it doesn't have to be a constant trajectory forward. You can step aside. You can step back even and do what is best for you at various points in your life. And don't worry if it stalls out for a little while. I mean, there are times in my career when I was so driven to get to the next step that I think I made sacrifices that I probably would have been better off not making. And so I think it's okay to give ourselves permission to not always be on that forward trajectory. So those are some of the things that I may have just contradicted myself and that advice I gave to me, but that's okay too. Those are some of the things that as a younger officer, I wish I had gotten advice on. Uh, I had tremendous mentors. They were all men. I had great mentors who cared about me. Uh, They were all fathers of daughters, which I think helped a lot in terms of they wanted to see my generation succeed because I think they saw opportunities for their own children. And that was very important to them. But I do wish that I had um, both been given permission, so to speak, to do maybe some things that were not the normal career progression. And I wish I had been more comfortable taking risk. I got comfortable with it, but I wasn't as comfortable with it as a young woman. I love that. I think I'll always remember um, life is short, but your career is long. So it's okay to take the risks because you, you have a long career. So I love that. So as you know, we end each episode uh, with the same question. In keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, I have always attracted negative publicity for, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know why. I'm the nicest person you'd ever want to meet. So why do, <laughs> why do reporters always want to say negative things about me? I can't explain it. But a few years ago, and I'm not going to mention who it was because I don't want to sell any of his crappy books, but I had an author describe me as a steely-eyed blonde. and. I don't think he was referring to the fact that I have gray eyes. I think he meant it as a negative, but I decided to embrace it. And so a year or so later, when I was, I had to come up with a uh, social media nickname, I tried Steely Eye Blonde and it was too long. So I became Steely Blonde and I decided that it's a badge of honor and courage and I embraced it. So I think I would want to be Steely Blonde. I Love that so much. I love it because who cares what this reporter said? You're going to wear that like a badge of honor and you're going to say, yeah, I am. And so what? (laughs) So Joan, oh my goodness, this was great. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us. And I hope you enjoyed the time we spent together because I sure did. Um, Thank you for your, your service throughout your career. Thank you for teaching us all what a mentor is. And I know not just myself, but many, many, many others appreciate everything you have given to this community and given to women in this community. So thank you, Joan. 
Thank you, Megan. It was my pleasure being with you today. And I just wish you and all the other amazing women of the IC all the best. And thanks for all that you all do as well. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you'd like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we want to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.